0: Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burrus. Joining us today is Christopher Preble. He's Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute and author of the new book from Libertarianism.org: Peace, War, and Liberty: Understanding U.S. Foreign Policy. Welcome to Free Thoughts, Chris. Thanks for having me. A lot of our listeners are fans of Friedrich Hayek. And you note in the book that while Hayek wrote little or nothing about foreign policy, his insights ought to inform how we approach the topic. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, I think that The notion of the fatal conceit and the problem of knowledge and unintended consequences, all of which Hayek wrote about at length, all are clearly applicable in foreign policy and arguably more important in foreign policy than in domestic policy because the unintended consequences of a poorly thought out um, economic regulation, for example, um, may – Raise the cost of a particular product or service, or may, in extreme cases, like for example, in denying people access to life-saving drugs or delaying access, you know, you can you can cause the loss of life. But but war um, causes the loss of life by you know intentionally. That's the whole object. You're trying to kill people and break things. And so the notion that we should sort of check Hayek's warning at the water's edge seems to me utterly upside down. It's just completely bizarre to me. And yet, um, I do think among, um, conservatives, for example, Hayek has become sort of, you know, one of the celebrated figures on, on the right. Um, and they don't, however, seem for the most part to apply those teachings when the U S military engages in, in, uh, various operations abroad. And I've always, um, been puzzled by this what I see as cognitive dissonance to be perfectly honest with you uh, i just don't I don't really get it
2: It's an overestimation of the government's capabilities, but do you think there's i mean i think on both sides that if you are saying we need single payer health care, mm-hmm. the Hayek would have something to say about that being an right. overestimation of the, yes. the Department of HHS to do this. Yeah, but then also don't overestimate the DOJ and the State Department's ability to do other things too. But then we have this idea that the military is a well-oiled machine, right. In a way that the HHS is not. Yeah, talk to the generals.
1: Right. I mean, and. Let me be clear. As you guys know, I served in the military. I could, I saw firsthand that the U.S. Navy was able to do some pretty incredible things on short notice, and and it was it was a sight to behold. I also know that they were able to they were able to make some really you know, gooned up uh, things too, and sort of day to day operations that have been written about since the what the days of Ernie Pyle for crying out loud. So, so I think for starters, it's important for us to sort of put the military in its proper place. The military is an instrument of American power. Members of the military, soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, have a particular job to do. They are asked to do it. They are also exceptionally adaptable, um, and I think that is a real testament to – um, sort of the volunteer military and the training that, that these men and women receive. Um, and they are inclined to sort of salute smartly and carry out a mission that's, that's given to them as opposed to, you know, point to the regulation or something and say, where does it say I can do this? Having said that, it seems to me doubly uh, important for us not to ask them do, to do things that they shouldn't be doing in the first place or that they're going to try to accomplish and ultimately fail. So nation building, for example, by by force um, is a fool's errand. And um, I think asking the military to, to try to do those sorts of things really sets them up for failure. This disconnect, though, I think is really interesting in, in the way that we
0: think about we being kind of the American people um, or and particularly conservatives seem more vocal about this, but the, the way that we think about domestic government and the people in it versus the people in the military. Mm-hmm. And and it, it it's not just like about their, their capabilities that we think, you know, you give the military a large scale project and it'll go out and do it because it's this well-oiled machine mm-hmm. and contemporary bureaucrats don't know what they're doing. But also in like even level of respect, like mm-hmm. we tend to just – it's, it's – perfectly okay to say all sorts of nasty things about domestic bureaucrats and you hear that all the time but saying nasty things about anyone in -hmm. the military or even not saying nasty things but not paying them the level of respect that it's imagined they are owed like say kneeling in a football game is is like just beyond the pale correct Um, and it seems it seems kind of un-American in a certain (laughs) sense because, I mean, we go back to like we didn't – early didn't want a standing army. We had civilian leaders of the military. Like we kind of knocked the military down a couple of pegs. And so what what explains this?
1: Um, Where should we begin? Um, (laughs) I think, Aaron, you're absolutely right that if you look at the writings of the founders – um, their attitudes on sort of standing armies and the military as a profession and even soldiers as as individuals was was really quite um well occasionally disdainful uh, I wrote about this uh, last year um commenting on the proliferation of war memorials um on the national mall of which there are now many um However, um, I do think that some of the experience of the second half of the 20th century where the US military occasionally uh, performed uh, – you know, and um, frankly uh, often performed sort of heroic uh, feats – And our memory of especially World War II, for example, and even more recently, um, things like the first Gulf War in 1990, 1991, um, allowed for, as as George H.W. Bush said famously, to sort of, you know. uh, trash the Vietnam Doctrine forever. This is the notion that that sort of we go through these ebbs and flows where where people see the limits of military power and question uh, whether or not uh, U.S. military personnel are up to the task of doing the things that we ask them to do, and then when they do accomplish great things, then we sort of we have a, we have a tendency to want to put to the side any questions about what what they can or cannot do. Um, the other person who I, I've read widely and He's spoken here at Cato several different times. Andrew Bacevich wrote about this in his book, The New American Militarism. He talks about the sort of very concerted effort on the part of of some uh, intellectual, mostly political leaders to sort of – uh, reaffirm the importance of military power. Ronald Reagan played a particularly critical role in this in this way, sort of reaffirm reaffirm the importance uh, and utility of the military as an instrument of American power. And I think that lesson from the 1980s carried over into the post cold war period again if you believe that the us military is the reason why the united states prevailed over the soviet union in the cold war then you could then then you would be particularly um sort of criticized or or people would question your judgment if you would raise issues in the 1990s of whether or not we should be doing this in the first place. Look at what we just did. We just defeated the Soviet Union. We, the United States or the US military did. Then how can you possibly question their ability to fix Haiti, for example? How can you possibly question whether or not it's appropriate for them to be intervening in a civil war in Bosnia or Kosovo?
2: If we take World War II as sort of I don't know if you would define it, the beginning of modern, at least. I don't know if you would consider still in the post-World War II era. We have also 9-11, which yes. like we'll get to. But before World War II, I mean right before, if I remember correctly, we went into that war with World War I gear, I think. I mean, a lot of people had Springfield rifles from World War I. Sure. You don't hear a lot about American military buildup right up until World War Two. Right. And then after that, we we have this new role in the world. Right. Uh, and that begins this this new era. And of course communism comes into play and the overestimation, do we see any, uh, military wars in the fifties that America's really involved. I mean, other than Korea, I guess. Well Korea
1: is an important moment. In fact, I actually think that the Korea in that respect is even it could be arguably even more important than World War II. We did demobilize after World War II pretty substantially. I mean the numbers of troops in, in the in the Army, in the military generally came way, way down after the after 1945. We forget that because it was brief, right? Nineteen fifty and the war in Korea then allowed for a huge expansion of the military and it remained at that level. You also have the passage of the National Security Act in 1947, which created things like the Air Force and other things like that. So you do have, I think, the creation of this permanent military, which it wasn't obvious, it seems to me, even as late as 1945, that that was what was going to emerge from World War II. And yet that's what did emerge because of the Cold War. But Korea also includes this
2: other element, which which I think is – if we're talking about this post-World War II period, it was the U.N., also,
1: right, and and what ultimately became the World Trade Organization, or you know, GAT and and international trade agreements, and you know, currency convertibility through the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, and things like that. So there were institutions of American power uh, that went well beyond the U.S. military, and, and I, again, I think we tend to neglect or at least uh, sort of ignore uh, uh, those those other instruments of power
0: in our current landscape our current thinking about foreign policy one of the distinctions that you mention in the book that i found interesting and thought like might not be something a lot of people is clear to a lot of people is you distinguish preemption mm-hmm. as as a strategy as a goal yes um, and preventative war yes. what's the difference
1: it's really a critical distinction and they tend to be blurred uh, i think sometimes deliberately um, preemption is self defense it is it is a legitimate exercise of um, force to uh, avert an imminent threat, um, no one to my knowledge um, in and certainly not sort of in modern international relations questions a country's um, uh, authority and and justification in um, taking steps to thwart an imminent attack that is critically different from um, initiating the use of force to prevent a possible future threat from materializing. The reason why we draw these distinctions is because whereas preemption is seen as a legitimate use of force I mean, again, the, the, the metaphor is, is or excuse me pardon me the analogy that is more appropriate is. If you're in a bar and someone takes a swing at you, you don't have to wait for his fist to hit your face to to try to parry the blow, right? That's preemption. Prevention is walking up to a guy in the bar and punching him because two hours later, after he has seven or eight beers, he might take a shot at you. That's the difference. The reason why we draw that distinction is twofold. First of all, because prevention, as I've just described it, is is indistinguishable From aggression. It really doesn't look any different from just picking a guy out of a crowd and punching his lights out. That's aggression. We see that as an illegitimate use of force. And when a country does it, the other problem with prevention, though, and this gets it back to Hayek, is prevention implies that, you know, with with certainty that after that man consumes those seven or eight beers, he is going to become a rampaging fool and he will be a threat to you in the future. How on earth do you know that Hayek would tell you that you can't possibly predict the future that way? Also, Bismarck, who I quote in the book, uh, likened preventive war to committing suicide for fear of death. It presumes that you know with with utter certainty that this threat will materialize in the future, and that you are equally certain that whatever steps you take to mitigate that danger will be effective. Again, we have no reason to believe that either of those things is true, and that's why I think it's really critical to differentiate between preemption and prevention.
0: But this isn't there, this isn't a bright line thing. Like this is a spectrum of you when know, wind, wind is a threat
1: sufficiently
0: sure. certain enough, and so. How do you figure that out? Is there a principled way to figure that out? And has what counts as preemption versus preventative action changed? after September 11th when it was no longer like we're we're not – we can't like look over and be like, oh, well, they're building up their military, but it's not quite to the threat, but we'll keep an eye on it. It's more just like
1: out of the blue, they blow up our buildings. Right. Um, I think President Bush tried quite deliberately to uh, reframe the notion of preemption versus prevention after 9-11. His speech at West Point in 2002 uh, quite deliberately said that the United States will not wait uh, while dangers gather, and the, and the the premise was that dangers would gather unless we dealt with them in a preventive fashion. He was really trying to sort of wash away these distinctions and just explain. And because of 9/11, because of terrorism, um, create this new threshold. Now, needless to say, the war in Iraq, which was fought under those premises in March of 2003, the prevention, not preemption, not a claim that that Saddam Hussein was an imminent danger to the United States, in fact that the, the President Bush never made that, that assertion. He never claimed that, that Saddam Hussein was was poised to carry out uh, an imminent attack against the United States. He made the case for war on strictly preventive grounds, that he will be a danger in the future and therefore we must take action. I think that what has played out in Iraq and frankly in the region uh, at, by because of the war there sort of r- reminds us. Why why statement statesmen have advised against preventive war?
2: I'm sitting here. R- r- I wrote out an equation uh, as you were talking, Chris, <laughs> about military action. Um, so, possible harm, the degree of possible harm uh, to us. So that's different from Pancho Villa invading the United States yes. uh, with his ragtag bag yes. versus a nuclear weapon. Yes. Okay. Probability of that thing happening. Uh, times ease of military action right. equals your sort of equation on whether or not you'll go into to so is it super easy can we just send some robots over there bomb them prevent a huge possible harm right. with a low probability of, of happening right. but still that sort of a precautionary principle with our forward projection right. does that seem like a kind of accurate way people look at the world
1: i've i've never drawn a um A formula like you just did, Trevor. (laughs) So thank you for doing that. Uh, I was watching what you were doing. I'm like, what is he doing over there? Uh, No, I think that's exactly right. But I think that the problem of, of that formulation is not assessing the likelihood of a catastrophic event occurring. Uh, that's part of it. But equally important is assessing the likelihood that your preventive action will succeed at low cost. And again, this is the part where our tendency to excuse or look past the military sort of um inherent limitations, we we, in, we invest in the military, we expect it to accomplish these unbelievably amazing things at low cost and low risk, and, and, and it just doesn't actually work that way. And again, that's not the fault of the soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines. It's the fault of those who believe that magical, that military power is like magical pixie dust.
2: How much uh, – you mentioned previous – and something I've thought about a lot, especially after having watched the Ken Burns recent mm-hmm. documentary – but Vietnam is getting older and older now. Uh, how? But how much do you, you we still have this sort of specter of Vietnam? Maybe it gets renewed at different times where right. we – that was – I mean, it's widely agreed except for some – Maybe still reactionary conservatives who say, you know, we should have been there for as long. We should have stayed there. Right. Noble cause. Right. We should have stayed. Yeah. Right. But but most people, it's it's common public opinion that it was a complete disaster. Right. The government lied to us. We killed a bunch of people, and it could happen again if we don't watch the government and, right and keep them from doing that.
1: But of course, as a historian. Explaining why it was a disaster is not the same as excusing uh, or claiming that we should have stayed forever. Again, you, we will have debates forever. It seems to me, on um, on why it failed, and 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 therefore there's always grounds for for historians to to point to a particular factor that had we done something slightly differently, it would have it would have succeeded. I think it's. Again, as a historian, I'm happy to engage in that, but as a policy analyst and as someone trying to advise, you know, contemporary policy, I think we should be much more focused on the the specific Mission that we are asking the military to accomplish. Most of these missions are much smaller in scale, frankly, than trying to overturn an established political order in North Vietnam, for example, or to save the the political order in South Vietnam. Um, and even in those smaller cases, even in those cases where it seems so much easier. It isn't. It's never easy. It's really hard. So precisely for those reasons, I think it's it's incumbent upon uh, those advocates for military intervention to spell out as clearly as possible what do they expect the introduction of forces to a particular place is going to do. To help illustrate
0: this then, that how you would put these principles into practice, mm-hmm. if you had been commander-in-chief mm-hmm. – um, what military actions of the last 20-30 years would you have not undertaken? We've gone into Afghanistan.
1: I would have gone into Afghanistan. Um I think that the mission as initially imagined in really as early as late September 2001 was quite specific. It was to dislodge al-Qaeda from its training camps in Afghanistan. It was to um, reduce their ability or put put them under duress and make it harder for them to plan similar operations in the future. And as important, perhaps, it was to send a message to other countries around the world. Again, the Taliban knowingly tolerated the al- al-Qaeda in their midst. It wasn't like al-Qaeda was there without their knowledge. Uh, so it, was a me- it sent a message to other countries that if you knowingly, Harbor uh, groups that are actively engaged in or planning attacks against the United States, we will not tolerate that. But I could argue that all of those missions were accomplished. That all of that was accomplished in a matter of a few months. Uh, the mission changed, and we tried to create a functioning state with you know respected human rights and liberalism and promoting promo- prosperity and all those other things. And 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 we're still there. That's why we're still there because we changed the mission.
2: Does the uh- Calculus change. We so Obviously, I think the imminent threat to America should be a focus, but it's also become much more. And you see this in Afghanistan. Um, stop the threat now. Build liberalism, right? right? right. Which, which. Those seem very different different goals. Uh, <laughs> yeah, just just a little bit. They're quite uh, different. It'd be yes. like it'd be like in the bar fight. It'd be like you, the guy comes up and punches me, and I stop it. And then I'm like, "All right, now let's reform your entire life and go back <laughs> exactly. and rethink how how, right. you, how you're living how your life. Right? You right. To, to, <laughs> how did you get you came to the point right. that you wanted to punch yeah, me? Yeah, uh, and, and but at the same time, it could be it doesn't mean it's always a bad idea. Or like so, we got Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, Going on democracy pretty well and right. moving it after uh, essentially a theocratic dictatorship. Mm-hmm. Right, Germany right. turned out okay. Germany turned out okay. Right, yeah. and, and Japan. I mean, we even left the the Hirohito in there. Right, right. Uh, God Emperor. I mean, that was a pretty impressive thing we did. Right, or should we take the credit? I guess maybe <clears throat> the well, Japanese had something to do with it. But. <laughs> that they had
1: something to do with it. Yes, um, I, I think that that the. As I alluded a few minutes ago, the experience of World War II and especially in Germany and Japan has encouraged people to believe that because Germany and Japan turned out okay after a horrific war that killed tens of millions of people um, because of that. We should try it again. But again, we didn't initiate the use of force against either Germany or Japan. We, the United States of America, did not launch attacks that killed millions. We did not, in the case of Germany, invade their neighbors and enslave or slaughter, you know, tens of millions of people. The Russians lost, you know, Soviets lost, you know, twenty-eight to thirty-two million people, something like that. It's just horrific. It's unbelievable. Um, I am aware. I, I don't know of anyone in the United States who would argue that those kinds of losses are tolerable in the service of promoting democracy and liberalism, right? So there's something about us that rejects the use of force as a vehicle for promoting liberty. The good news is there are nonviolent ways to promote liberty and, and we, I think, do not give those other means sufficient weight if we just focus on Germany and Japan. Um, and again, as a historian, I am aware of the the case for promoting liberty by example, promoting um, um, fr- uh, promoting human rights by example. It was a way that worked for the United States for a good part of its history. And and even since World War II, we have seen the growth of liberalism in many places that were never touched by U.S. military power, that were never, you know, intervened in, never, never had U.S soldiers tramping about. And so it seems to me that you have to explain those cases as well if you believe that U.S. military power is the critical component that explains the spread of liberty since the end of World War II.
0: There's also a real inconsistency in our application of this desire to spread liberalism, to make countries more open and free. I I was struck, I think, earlier this week we're recording this the first week of March, um, Anderson Cooper... Mm-hmm. went on a rant that was all over the interwebs. Um, and he – in so Trump had come back from meeting with North Korea's Kim and I think had said – this was when he said he believed Kim that he had nothing to do with Otto Warmbier's mm-hmm. death. Right. Um, and Cooper said, it is not normal for a president of the United States, a country which has traditionally held itself as a beacon of freedom for the world, to praise one of the worst dictators on the planet. Right. Except it kind of is. Right. The
1: traditionally is doing an awful lot of work in that sentence. Um, I think uh, – there is a tendency to want to excuse American behavior. Well, because we meant well. That's the title of the book, actually. We meant well, and I and you know I, I I laugh about that. But I I think in many instances Americans genuinely do mean well. I don't think we go around trying to make things worse, but ignoring those instances in which we did make things worse. Even if unintentionally, is not the same as drawing a moral equivalence to what the Soviet Union did in Eastern Europe after after the after World War II. It is not the same as excusing what the Chinese are doing right now to the weaker population in China. To admit that the United States has occasionally done things that have had bad effects for liberty for human rights is not the same as saying that's what was that was our intention all along. And I think it's important to be able to speak honestly about. The shortcomings of U.S. foreign policy, precisely because it, in, I think, it would induce greater caution and restraint on the part of American policymakers.
0: But there's there's also this disconnect in that we talk about how our role, so we we want to be the global hegemon in order to promote liberty. Right. Um, that our role is to be this example and to create liberalism either through example or through force. But that this is this is the view we have of ourselves. But then the way that we are kind of constantly in bed with pretty awful people mm-hmm. all over the world. I mean, the, the Saudis are arguably as bad as anyone yes. and no one seems to – I mean, occasionally there's kind of a flare-up A Rand Paul says we shouldn't maybe sell them so many weapons, but by and large, the same foreign policy establishment that's super happy for – that wants to say we're out there promoting democracy and freedom and love and everything wonderful – doesn't want to do anything to damage relationships with these kinds of people.
1: Right. And that's why I think it's all the more important for places like Cato and we do to call out those instances of just gross hypocrisy and and at a minimum force people to explain why is it different. Actually, this happened over the weekend. Again, we're recording uh, in early March. Um, Who was Jake? I believe. I think it was Jake Tapper who asked John Bolton this question because Bolton had gone on at some length about Maduro in Venezuela, who is a a horrible thug and corrupt and all these other things, all true. Uh, And then uh, CNN's tapper asked him, well, what about about the Saudis? Is that different? (laughs) Bolton said, yeah, it is different, but he didn't explain why, right? (laughs) Um, And and I think, you know, if you look at at Cato's work, of course, I point to my my friend and colleague, Ted Carpenter has been here for years, has written about this. um, And we Americans have to be more sort of aware, self-aware about what it is we're doing. We have to not sort of believe our own, our own spin. Um, sometimes we ally ourselves with truly reprehensible regimes. Sometimes we do so for good reason. Joseph Stalin was well, a bad guy. Adolf Hitler was worse, and so therefore you can justify. At the time, at the time, yeah, in the, the, time, the immediate immediate. threat, yeah. you can you can explain. And it's at a minimum, it seems to me that American policymakers have to be able to explain it. I think if they were actually compelled to do so, many times their justifications would fall flat. It would just not seem to be worth it. Um, but rare, but they're very rarely held to account.
2: You mentioned John Bolton, and if we took, we went back to the Trevor equation. I'm just going to name it that. Uh, <laughs> as soon as we will sweep the foreign policy world, and it will become known as the Trevor equation. So we have uh, ease of military action. How easy it is for right. us to do this. Probability that the thing will happen times the possible harm that if right. it does happen. I think that John Bolton thinks that all of these are high. Right? In he, well, yeah. the, 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 it, it could be super uh, nuclear weapons are everywhere. It's probable that Iran wants them and it'd be super easy for us to go in and weed them out, right?
1: Trevor it, it seems that way based on his rhetoric that he is quite Confident that U.S. military power will will succeed at low cost, he is quite skeptical of the other instruments of American power like diplomacy and trade and cultural exchange, and he is quite anxious about uh, the the magnitude of the harm and the likelihood that it will come to us. Yes,
2: but you ask, and you'd ask John Bolton too. You'd say that we have this important for primacy that if you if if you want the American military to retrench or spend less money on mm-hmm. it, so you're really just trading. The American primacy, with all the wrinkles, right. for Chinese or Russian or some some right. other future threats. Sure, primacy.
1: you you hear that thrown around a lot. To which I say, there are roughly 195 countries in the world. Not all of them, granted, are you know certainly of equal weight. Uh, but to say that the only alternative to American dominance is Chinese dominance of the world, both sort of understates the challenges for China even internally. It downplays the importance that other countries can and do play around the world. Uh, And I think it sets up a false dichotomy, which is fairly easily sort of deconstructed. Uh, Even as we speak, um, US allies that have traditionally been told frankly, not to do very much because the United States has this has this covered, right? We'll do the security stuff. You guys do the other things. Um, they are now pushing back. American allies are pushing back on, for example, the Trump administration's interpretation of the Iran nuclear deal as being a horrible deal. Our European allies disagree with us on that. Uh, our European allies disagree with the United States on the importance of um, fighting Al-Qaeda in certain places and making exceptions uh, in others. And And so I think there are other, meanwhile, we've already mentioned Venezuela. Meanwhile, in the Western hemisphere, you have this Lima group that stood up last year, two years ago. Um, doesn't appear to be a creation of the United States it didn't even exist. Right. There was there is an organization of American states. And yet here we have an example, even in our hemisphere of other countries coming together, seeing a danger, seeing a human rights catastrophe playing out, seeing a, you know, that's causing a refugee crisis that they're having to deal with. The United States isn't orchestrating this, and and so even even here, even now, we see examples of other countries behaving in a responsible way, um, precisely at a time when the United States, unfortunately, is seeming to to behave less responsibly.
2: So, would you agree? In order to produce more of that, that we like, we should have, we should do less. Well, we, and then Trump talks about that people in Europe need to pitch in, you right? Need to actually, do, do take their take up some of their own defense, and and then they could actually be. It doesn't have to be a unipolar world. You can have German foreign policy and Polish foreign policy, and they can all align against Russia, and we can stay out of it, I
1: guess. Right. So he does say that from time to time. The problem with him saying that is that it is sort of belied by his decision to dramatically increase the size of the U.S. military. For what purpose? I'm not sure. Uh, If he actually believes that we're going to use it less, then we shouldn't. We shouldn't need as large a military as the one we have that was that was ostensibly to protect 60 plus some odd treaty allies. Um, and meanwhile, he also implies the way he the way he frames, for example, the NATO discussion, um, sometimes he implies like he thinks Angla Merkel is going to walk into the Oval Office with a big check. That's not <laughs> how it works. But he also implies that if the Europeans merely spent the two percent of GDP that they're supposed to for the military, then that would mean that the United States would continue to defend them indefinitely because they've paid their their you know their dues, so to speak. That's also not how it's supposed to work. So I'm not really enthused with the way the president has framed this discussion, both because I think it, it it sort of misleads on in terms of how contributions to U.S. alliances are actually um, how they how they actually play out, but also because it implies that if we just struck the bargain correctly that the United States would continue to pay for others' defenses indefinitely just so long as we reach you know a reasonable uh, estimation on what they should be what they should be paying it, it turns the u s military frankly into sort of a mercenary force, which I find to be frankly um, reprehensible
0: well so but right now we have this enormous military we spend a ton of money on it mm-hmm. right now we live in a world where lots of countries are dependent on us to yes. some degree or another for defense because that's how that's how, how it's, it's right. been structured yeah. for yeah. decades. Um, <clears throat> and so given that world when say is it appropriate for us to use the power that we have um, to intervene in Conflicts that don't immediately impact us. Mm-hmm. So conflicts between other nations, where maybe genocide is happening, or conflicts within nations, civil wars. When we've got this opportunity, and just because of the non-ideal structure of the world, we can do it in a way that others can't. Right,
2: and, and, and maybe some specific examples. So Bosnia, Kosovo. Uh, a lot of people say that was a, a pretty good intervention as things go. Right, and that we didn't do Rwanda. Right I mean, how, how should we calculate on those kind of things?
1: Right. So I think that that in the case of Bosnia and, and sort of the, the post- Yugoslav civil wars generally, so that includes Kosovo as well later, um, there was no European independent European military capability. Uh, independent of NATO in the middle 1990s. We effectively discouraged that from ever materializing um, and even in the immediate aftermath of the Cold War, we actively discouraged such a thing. There was some talk about the creation of an independent uh, European defense force and it sort of fell apart. The US was was pretty adamant that they didn't want to see the Europeans create anything independent of NATO. I think that that was a mistake. I think it was... it it. It sort of misapprehended the value of having other countries dependent upon the, the military power of the United States. And so then people seized upon the intervention in the Balkans to see this demonstrates why the United States can always do this. My response is no. It demonstrates why we should actually want to have other countries with capability to do something about it, which brings up Rwanda. Uh, there was no comparable um, uh, regional military alliance like NATO in Africa. And therefore, who was going to be involved there? Well, in the case of Rwanda, the French were going to be involved there because it was a former French colony. And they they were. They were present there, but not feeling as though they all by themselves could do it, uh, could do anything to stop the the genocide there. Um, I would like to see a world in which there were more capable actors who were more inclined to act when there are gross human rights violations occurring. I think that more countries would be inclined to deal with those problems when they are proximate, when they are nearby. But the United States has held itself out as famously the indispensable nation. And therefore, I think there's a tendency for people to look over their shoulder and say, hey, where's Uncle Sam to bail us out of this problem that's that's on our border. I think that's, uh, I think it's problematic. I think it was probably problematic in the 1990s. It's much worse now, precisely because of the overhang of the war in Iraq. And you're likely to see the United States is not as inclined. The American people are not as inclined to use the military as the, as we were 15 or 20 years ago, which then the danger is that unless someone comes along to, to, to fill this space, there may be more instances where you have, um, uh, uh more things happening in the United States and no one in a position to do anything about it. That's the part that I think we frankly should be working pr- quite aggressively uh, to to uh, to plan out so that other countries are em- yeah. empowered to deal with it and not, again, but it's not a uh, uh, an on-off switch. It's not the United States or no one. It's not the United States or China, right? It's not that simplistic.
2: It, well, it, it seems also that maybe the genocide case that if we just, for Rwanda, it doesn't necessarily suffer from the problems of over goals that are too ephemeral and difficult like setting up a democratic country in Rwanda because you it, stopping genocide is a little bit more straightforward if you think about it as a specific Intervention, possibly, then setting up a liberal democracy. I mean, we could we use the kind of uh, special forces, drones. Like if that were to happen again in a, in a country in Africa, could we could we use our kind of um, high tech military power to to just protect people uh, versus doing much more than that?
1: I'm a little skeptical about that, um, partly because if the I don't want to get too wrapped around the axle in the Rwanda case itself because it's it's quite complicated and I'm not as sort of expert in the details of that particular intervention. But let's let's map out a future hypothetical, which is there is um, ethnic conflict that threatens to sort of boil over into ethnic violence, right? Um, what is the source of that ethnic conflict? Are you expecting the U.S. military to solve that conflict? No, you're not. Could you expect the U.S. military to prevent an act of violence, grave, you know, grave, violent, gross human rights abuses, et cetera, by a small group of of you know, well armed actors? Perhaps. We sort of saw that play out in Libya in 2011. Um, the problem we learned in the case of Libya is that um, the US military intervention might have, some dispute this, might have saved the city of Benghazi from from imminent attack by Gaddafi's forces, but you still have to deal with the after effect of once Gaddafi's forces were thwarted on the on the outskirts of Benghazi and the country descended into civil war, then what? You always have to deal with the then what question. So I think the kinds of, of scenarios like that you sketched out Trevor are fairly rare. I'm not going to say they're they they're, you know they're, there are no such cases, but they're fairly rare. I will make one exception quickly. I don't have a particular problem uh, with the US military intervening uh, after a natural disaster. When you have um, uh, human suffering that's not caused by the ill will, generally speaking, of any particular people or government, um, the US military is an exceptionally capable instrument, as I've talked about, their ability to to deliver things like food and water and and medical care and things like that. Um, That's fine. It doesn't. Frankly, adhere to sort of the very narrow libertarian definition of what the U.S. military is supposed to to be there for. But it's very different from from presuming that U.S. military intervention is going to solve the sources of the underlying sources of conflict that are actually the drivers of violence. That's the part that I'm, I'm much more. And that, and for that reason, if you actually look at what has happened in the Balkans since the U.S. intervention in the middle and late 1990s. There hasn't really been political reconciliation. You still sort of have this Potemkin um, political structure and uh, an underlying tension and resentment that is sort of papered over by an apparently um, indefinite foreign military presence. Not mostly the United States, but there it is.
0: What role does the military industrial complex play in this. Like this we've got this pervasive attitude of American militarism or adventurism or interventionism. um, And at the same time, like we live in Washington, D.C., you see like, is it the the AUSA Mm -hmm. convention happens that's enormous and all the important people show up. Um, You we take the metro through where all of the defense contractors are uh, They're
2: always advertising me planes that are frankly right. outside of my, my – you're, you're not, you're you're
0: not, not, you're not, I'm, not I'm not, you're not, not, you're not, in, you're the not in the market for, for an F-35, for, no, Trevor. <laughs> um, so how much of this is driven by there's, – there's a lot of people who stand to make a lot of money doing all of the things you're
1: asking us not to do. I think it is partly driven by that. I don't think there's any question. I think that the existence of a permanent military – Industry and a handful of companies that are extraordinarily dependent upon sales to one buyer, the U.S. government, the U.S. military, is a factor. I don't think there's any question about that. But I also think that the fear factor and the and the the notion that we are uh, threatened um, on all sides by just an unimaginable array of of um, uh, enemies is is an equally important component. Now, you could argue that the military-industrial complex is responsible for generating that uh, perception of of fear, but to be honest, I don't think they're that powerful. I don't think they could do it all by themselves. Uh, And uh, and so I think you have to account for Americans' collective sense of vulnerability um, at a time when I look around and say... Boy, am I glad to be living in the United States of America even today at this, in, in this day and age, and um, I just you know don't really understand uh, the, the nature of, of uh, the way that people are so fearful. So I think it's, it's doubly uh, incumbent upon us to try to understand people's fears and to try to, to, to talk to them where, the, where they are and explain – this is why I think the, the consequentialist approach is so important to say, I understand you are fearful of these certain things – think through what you're asking the military to do to solve this problem to make you feel less fearful will it actually accomplish that? Um, and I think we have we've had a little more success pushing back on those on those terms um, but there's still um, uh, my colleague uh, Mark Stu- uh, John Mueller and Mark Stewart last year published a long paper about the people's fears of terrorism, which is basically... Unchanged since 9/11, it's pretty striking. Uh, but that still that, that doesn't that doesn't relieve policymakers from per, from advancing policies that actually reduce the danger, as opposed to respond to um, ar- arguably irrational fears.
2: Another aspect of the military industrial complex when they're sending these contracts out there to say we're looking for the super soldier of tomorrow, the kind of the kind of. Technology that's mm-hmm. frankly impressive, but you also put us in a situation where we increasingly don't have to endanger our troops at all right. when we are even destabilizing a country. Right, and that seems to be good and bad. <laughs> uh, I mean, I don't want right. to endanger American troops, right. But I don't want making a war as easy as pushing a button. And it seems like all the the military technology goes in that direction. So then we can do more, not armies on the ground, not massive deployment of American troops, but just more push-button warfare, robot warfare, and all this stuff. And that says, well, we can just use this, and that goes back to the Trevor equation, ease of military use, and risk to Americans, which is low now.
1: Right. So just because it's easy and just because the costs are low to Americans does not mean it's easy and the costs are low to everyone else. And so you have to think through what are the implications of the United States being able to, with, with greater ease, carry out um, uh, attacks acts of violence at and and the risk to American personnel are low uh, but what are the second and third order effects of using force in that way and one of the things we know for a fact is that it is the, the danger of blowback is real the danger that people not in the immediate term maybe maybe this is a generational thing uh, will look upon the United States behaving in this way and they will retaliate again they don't have to retaliate today or next week this this may come in the future so that's not an argument for never using force. I understand I'm not I'm not I don't approach it in that way, but it's if anything, it means we have to um, we have to think through more carefully what is it we are trying to accomplish and is it actually worth it even if the cost to us us is apparently low because you have to capture those costs over the longer over the medium to long term.
2: Now, after this uh, conversation, I, I always say that you talk to Chris and he's the most rational and even head, even head person about all these issues, but so many people say, I'm okay with libertarians except for the foreign policy. It's just unrealistic foreign policy. It's a sort of Pollyannish view of the world. It's isolationist, whatever sort of factor. What do you, what do you say in response to this idea that libertarian foreign policy is just simply unrealistic?
1: Besides buy the book. <laughs> yes, besides, besides buy the new book. Yes. By the book. Um, I think- First of all, we have a tragically um, uh, obvious failure of US foreign policy over the last 17 or 18 years in terms of the use of military force that has caused great harm. Again, I do not think that was the intention, uh, and I want to be very clear on that point. But we have dramatic evidence that um, that the U.S. military, as, as capable as it is, is not omnipotent. It does not work perfectly, and we have asked the military to do things that it is simply incapable of doing. So, if that is unrealistic of me to note that the U.S. military is a, has, you know, has certain limitations, then so be it. Again, I, I don't, I don't, um, uh, I don't. Let me stop for a minute. I would be the first to say that the US military is extraordinarily capable and I have seen it firsthand. But that doesn't mean that it can do everything or should be asked to do everything. That's, that's a point I want to emphasize. Second is this. Um, there are other instruments of American power that also work. They don't work all the time. We have to be sort of mindful, however, that the tendency to resort to the use of force crowds out those other instruments of power. It crowds out trade and mutually beneficial commercial exchange and cultural exchange and diplomacy and all of those things. And so that's where I push back on the isolationist claim. The founders and generations of American statesmen since understood the importance of the United States engaging with the rest of the world. Most of that engagement took place peacefully, non-coercively and to mutual benefit. And we libertarians, it is precisely because we have a skepticism towards the use of force that not all of our fellow Americans share. We have to speak equally, uh, forcefully about the things we believe in and the things we believe in are, uh, engaging with the rest of the world, um, as often as possible because I don't want to live in a country that does not that, it, that exists as an island I just don't want to live in such a place I don't want to be in a war in, in the United States that does not that is not every day enriched by our interactions with the rest of the world and so that and, and again that doesn't seem to be unrealistic at all that seems to me what has made this country great over 230 years uh, and we should continue it
0: Thanks for listening. Free Thoughts is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.